This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Mick Heron, the author of the Slough House novels, which became the Slow Horses TV series. His latest book, which is kind of a standalone, is The Secret Hours. And before we get into this, I really want to avoid spoilers. So let's go back to the origins of the book. Had this been in your mind for quite a while then? It hadn't at all, Richard, no. It started off quite simply with the first sentence, which is, um, the worst smell in the world is dead badger, uh, which is something my brother said to me. My brother, my brother, One of my brothers lives in Devon, and uh, we were staying with him and going for a walk along Devon's green lanes, which are these wonderful overgrown little tracks through the Devon countryside, uh, when he happened to make this remark, and I thought, oh, I can, I can use that. So that became the starting sentence of the book, and the green lanes themselves featured. I thought I'd open the novel with um, a, a man in his 60s being woken in his Devon cottage in the middle of the night by unknown assailants, and he ends up being chased down these green lanes running for his life. All we know about this man, who is called Max, but we know that's not his real name, um, is that he, whatever identity he has now, isn't his real identity, that for 20-odd years he's been living this particular life, but he used to be somebody else, and whatever's happening to him now has obviously come out of, of that history. Uh, and that was it. That was the starting point. And I, I was intending to write a, um, a complete standalone, which I've done once or twice since starting to write the Slough House series. Uh, but I quickly found the more I explored the story and, and what might lie in Max's past that has erupted in this way, um, I realised that I was writing in, in the Slough House universe because I knew that the intelligence services that were obviously a part of the plot were the same as they are in, in the Slough House series. Regent's Park is, is still there. And so gradually I realised that I could seed this particular novel, this exploration of what who Max is and what he'd been up to, uh, with what get called Easter eggs. You know, I could I could put a few little allusions to um to the Slough House world into the book. And I ended up doing a bit more than that, really. There ends up being quite a, a a segment of overlap in in some parts of the novel to the uh, to the world that I've created in the series, but I did not intend to do that when I started the novel, and it certainly hadn't been in my mind any longer than um, happened while I was writing the first. The secret hours, the title, did that come from you? Oh yeah, a lot of the book plays on notions of identity. There are characters who appear under only under the the names, their cover names as, as spies, and the the idea is that. Um, People are only themselves when they're completely alone. Anytime we're interacting with um, with others, particularly, you know, in an espionage novel, we wear different kinds of masks. These characters are all pretending one level or another. And so the secret hours are those hours when we are solitary and that's when we're honest and that's when we're, we truly reveal ourselves. But of course, there's nobody there to, to see us doing so. We open with Max on the run. And at this point, as a writer, do you know do you know who he is, or are you kind of going to discover it as you're writing it? It's difficult to remember precisely when I became aware of who Max was. I, my memory, certainly when I planned the opening chapter, I had no idea. When I came to write it, I think I think it was the same. I think I wrote that chapter cold, as it were, and uh, it was only in later sections of the book 
when I started to explore uh, how the book would work, what the structure would be, that um, that I came to have a better understanding of who he is, who he was. And then you switch gears to two characters, Malcolm Kyle and Griselda Flight. And at that point, did you have a vague idea that this would wind up being kind of a flashback to the 90s? Or at that point, were you more looking at how the Tories were going to destroy the Secret Service? <laughs> By the time I got to uh, writing that section of the book, I was more on home ground there, writing about these civil servants who've been um, seconded to uh, running this committee uh, investigating the misdeeds of the intelligence services and have found themselves completely stymied right from day one by the head of the intelligence service. So they're, they're essentially grinding their wheels. And by the time this chapter opens, have been doing so for several years. But I was on familiar territory by then, and I knew what I was doing. I knew that these people would be frustrated and thwarted, and and that when an opportunity came, even though it wasn't necessarily um, f- fully legal, they weren't sure they should be doing this, when an opportunity came to investigate an actual secret file that does fall into their hands they they seized it with both hands simply because they um because of those frustrations and their desire to um if not necessarily to prove themselves at least to revenge themselves for the, the years they'd spent uh sitting in a room talking to pointless witnesses and um uh, and to revenge themselves for having been put in this situation in the first place and having their careers blown out of the water uh, and then by then i knew that it would involve flashback i knew that i would be looking at the contents of a file that would take me back near a cold war territory it's not actually in the cold war it's post reunification of berlin and the you know the soviet union is no more but the echoes are still there if you like it's it's very cleanly after the cold war one element of the book that i found very interesting is you had no fear of introducing new characters we have not seen before, even when you're like a third to halfway through the book. It's kind of a switch. Uh, were you concerned about that at all? Or I am now you've mentioned it, but at the time it hadn't really occurred to me. No, this was simply how the book worked. And because I wasn't going to prefigure the, um, the contents of the file, uh, that meant that we wouldn't approach that part of the book, you know, and those those events and those characters until we actually reach that point. So yes, we're about two thirds into the novel before they appear. I had confidence, I suppose, that um, anybody who'd read that file would want to find out what was in this file because they knew they knew all about the file. They knew that it existed, and I hope that they would be curious about its contents. So there's that. But to be honest, I hadn't that hadn't really occurred to me that uh, that this would be a, an issue. Because, of course, they've been in my mind all, all the way through the book at one level or another. So, yeah. I'm just trying to remember, the toward the end, is that the second desk or the first desk who comes into the book? I think that was the first desk, correct? First desk, yes, who's never actually named in this book. It's one of those instances where people are not uh, operating under their um, identities that we immediately recognize. Now, that is a different character or the same character as the second desk from the Slough House books? There's a character who starts off as second desk and ultimately becomes first desk. What kind of research did you do on Berlin in the 90s? Did you go over there and kind of look around and find the street and the place? I, I didn't. I mean, I have visited Berlin several times, but not in the course of researching the novel. Uh, because, I, I mean, I came to start working on this during... 
It was still kind of locked down, really. I certainly wasn't travelling at the time I started writing the book. No, I was mostly interested in the kind of social history or the social aspects of uh, Berlin in that era. I didn't, um, I didn't sit surrounded by maps or anything like that. Um, I'd read up about uh, the population of the city at the time. You know, who was there, what they were up to, what the feel of the city was. It, it felt to me, from what I read, that it was a, a very young city and a very discontented. I mean, there were a lot of youth there, many of them evading a draft. There was a lot of unemployment. There was a lot of hedonistic behaviour. A lot of parties going on, and in a sense, it was also a, a sort of Cold War hangover going on. I mean. The effects of the Cold War were still being felt there more than anywhere else is the impression that I got because although the wall was no longer there, it's not like the city had yet healed. I mean, the economic miracle right. hadn't yet happened. Uh, people were suffering the, um, the after effects still. There were many more men than women there. There were a lot of squatters going on. There were a lot of empty, empty buildings. There was a lot of resentment about the, the natures of the new freedom that had appeared. I mean, a lot of it was resulted in people from the West going over and, and taking jobs in the East, oddly enough, in, in positions of authority and responsibility. So there were problems there that, um, that seem to have been solved now. I mean, Berlin's a beautiful and very high-functioning city now, but I think it was still in disarray then, and that's what I was interested in. When you were doing the research, I guess that was before the actual plotting or was it during? And the other part of that is during that period, did you find anything that you suddenly, a little light bulb goes off and you go, wow, I can really use this? Moments like that for me tend to relate to the plot. I mean, as ideas occur to me to do with the narrative that I'm constructing. Uh, research is, is very light-based for me. I mean, I do it largely on the internet. And I do it as I need it. I mean, I, I sort of stopped writing and, and did a bit of reading. When I got to that point in the novel, I hadn't done it before starting to write the novel. Well, as I say, when I started to write, I wasn't aware of where the plot was going to take me. So, no, research, I'm, I'm a bit research-averse. I mean, I do as little of it as I can possibly get away with. There were moments in the research, yes. I mean, there were a lot of moments I thought, oh, I can use this, like the notion that um, East German cars had run on kind of coal-type fuel and smelt really bad, and the city smelt like that. And that's the kind of detail which I really liked and put in. But the the, big, the light bulb moments for me are less to do with um, with that kind of background or, or um, research-based material as to do with the fact that um, I can suddenly realise what I can do with a particular character, for instance. That's That, for me, is the real excitement in, in making a novel. When you're figuring out how it works and I, I guess this is true for all of the novels, there comes a point, and I noticed this in the first two series, which are very closely based on the novels, mm-hmm. there comes a point where you kind of have to connect the dots and pull everything together and figure out who was lying to who. At what point in the writing of any of these books does that moment come or does it just come gradually as you're writing? It's a gradual process, really. I mean, I I try to keep as much of it in my head as possible. I'm not a big note taker. I don't work in a room surrounded by, by post-it notes pasted to the walls or anything. So it's a, most, it's a matter of revising and revising and trying to be as completely in the novel as I can while I'm writing it so that I'm aware of what needs to be spelt out. I think the big danger is that um, I never actually mention something which is, you know, firmly in my head, so much so that um, that I realise that I haven't properly spelt it out. But on the whole, I mean, it's it's a matter of 
hoping that I get to the other side before I fall off the tightrope, really. I mean, because I'm not a, a big plotter, I don't have it all worked out in advance. There are uh, moments where I have to go and shut myself in a dark room and, and lie down and, <laughs> and worry for a while, you know. But it's never gets solved on the page. So, yeah. so, And then sometimes that idea comes to you and you work on it and suddenly, wham, you see how the points connect in ways you never thought? Yes, yes, that happens. And that's, those are lovely moments when they do happen, yeah. When you began the book, you knew it would be a standalone. That meant that you didn't know who Max was until you kind of stopped after his section and kind of figured it out. Is that correct? Pretty much, yeah. When you're writing like that, how much do you want to bring in politics because it's there in the background, particularly with your allusions to, I guess, a fictional character in your world, but Boris Johnson in particular, and possibly his ghastly successor? <laughs> yes, the less said about which, the better. Once I started working on this notion of a committee of inquiry, I realised that the book was going to have the same kind of political backdrop as the Slow House series has. And when I'm writing those books, you know, whatever is going on in political reality at the time that I'm writing the books tends to be reflected in the narrative. Once I realised that I was doing, as I say, this committee of inquiry, I knew that I was going to be using that same technique and inevitably going to be using the same tone of voice, really. So that's when I realised that it was going to be far less of a standalone than I had previously thought. Once I'm using the same narrative voice as I do in the Slough House books, that brings it, that's really what brings it close to the uh, to the same universe. It's the tone of voice more than anything else. Uh, the previous standalones I've written since starting to write the Slough House books were very different in tone um, and were different in approach and different in style as well, because I um, what I did with those books was I eliminated the semicolon. I, I used semicolons an awful lot. I didn't use them at all in those other two standalones, which made them tonally very, very different. Uh, but with this book, tonally, it's very similar to, well, yeah, it's the same, really, as the um, as the series. So that was that was it. And the politics was part of that. I mean, because I knew I was going to be commenting on politics, there seemed little point in attempting to um, to differentiate my approach, you know, in this book from the series. Going back in your career, I found a couple of great articles from The Guardian and then one in The New Yorker, which kind of illuminated your history. Growing up in Newcastle and then going to Oxford, you were a big reader and you read a lot of detective fiction, and that's why you started writing detective fiction before you turned to spies? I guess so, yes. I mean, I read a lot of fiction. I would read everything I could get my hands on. And inevitably, a lot of that was um, detective and thriller fiction. So writing the crime story, I mean, they were crime novels. They're more thrillers than, than mysteries. I'm not very good at constructing mysteries. So the, the books are all thrillers, but um, the earlier books centered on individuals, one of whom was a private detective, in fact. So, yeah, they fall into that crime category more than they do thriller and, and weren't espionage. And there, there were there were elements um, even in the first book of of the intelligence service world being hinted at. But yes, the, the the crime novel, more straightforward crime novel, was what I approached first into the spy novel. Uh, who were the authors that you were attracted to in the crime novel? Was it Chandler the usual the usual suspects? The usual suspects, certainly. I remember reading Chandler when I was at school and Hammett as well. And Agatha Christie, of course. I mean, Christie was the the bridge from 
children's fiction into adult fiction, as it is for, for many, I'd say the vast majority of um, uh, readers over here in, in the UK. And whoever was publishing in the 70s, really, when I was uh, uh, in my early teens, writers like Dick Francis and then, you know, Desmond Bagley and people like that. So anybody I could get my hands on, really. I was reading a lot of other stuff as well. I was reading Steinbeck. I was reading Hemingway and, and Fitzgerald. But um, the thriller and the book uh, that's, you know, purely there for entertainment, often of a quite kinetic nature, that's always been there. That's always been part of my my um, my reading. People like John Le Carre and Chandler as well took it to another level in terms of language. And you wrote a lot of poetry also. So you were able to kind of bring that into your books from the beginning, balancing the poetic with the fast pace must must be something that you have to really work at. I have a, a sort of inclination towards the lyrical, which is probably, you know, either a, a hangover from when I was writing verse or the reason why I wrote verse in the first place. And certainly the, the rhythms of, of poetry, I think, are very important and do carry over into prose. So it's always there. Uh, there is a balance, I think. I mean, tonally, I, I write in different registers. When my characters are, are talking to each other, it tends to be quite demotic, and I do try to make it fast-paced. But there are also, you know, descriptive passages, and I use a lot of metaphor and and go off into, into lyrical flights of fancy when I'm describing London and, um, and, uh, and rivers and things like that. The balance, the balance is something I rely purely on, on intuition to get right, and I never know that I am getting it right. It's something that only readers can tell me, really. Uh, but I, I've been doing it long enough that I, I trust my instincts, really. And after a few of those books, that's when you decided to switch to spies after some events that you kind of semi-witnessed in London, a bombing, correct? Well, that was part of it. I mean, I didn't have a Damascus moment or anything, but... Um, I was in London, as were millions of other people, on the day that the bombs went off on the tubes and on the bus. And it was, you know, affecting, obviously. But one of the things it made me think about, and this was a slow burn thought, was that I'd shied away from writing about um, larger issues, you know, sort of geopolitics and, and the like, because I felt that these were outside the the range of the kind of people I was writing about. You know, I write about fairly ordinary people. But of course, these, you know, if nothing else, these bombs showed that ordinary people were necessarily involved in geopolitical event, because if you're in a city, then you're, in the eyes of some people, a legitimate target for violence. It kind of allowed me in, a, in an odd sort of way to start writing about these larger things and involving my people who don't necessarily know, you know, what's going on in the bigger picture, but they do right. know what it's like on the ground. They know what it's like on the streets when, when you know, when bombs are going off. So you decided to move into the realm of spies. Uh, at that point, I would assume you'd read sufficient amounts of uh, Le Carre, Len Dayton, Eric Ambler, and Graham Greene. So you sort of had a background in creating your version of MI5. But in doing so, you kind of invented a lot of things that t people think are real, which is quite a compliment. It inevitably happens when you're writing about the intelligence service. All my knowledge of the intelligence services is based on, you know, fiction, really. I've read the occasional history, but um, mostly it's, it's you know, from having read Le Carre from a young age and um, and the other writers you mentioned, Len Dayton particularly, Graham Greene, who wrote some wonderful spy novels, and, and Ambler, uh, who's, a you know, one of the masters of the genre, um, 
less celebrated now than Le Carre and Dayton, I'm afraid. And I, I don't know, the, grabbed bits of details from here and there and felt licensed to make things up. I mean, you mentioned MI5 earlier. I do occasionally mention MI5, but I blur the boundaries a lot between MI5 and MI6, who are two entirely different organizations. I invented a headquarters in a place where it isn't, you know, Regent's Park. I mean, it's, a, it's an area of London, but it's not where the intelligence services are based. And so things like that, I felt I had perfect liberty to do and to, you know, invent all sorts of uh, protocols and procedures and, um, and my own versions of um, tradecraft and things like that. And these these things don't require huge imaginative powers to invent. If you've seen a few spy movies, if you've read a few spy novels, you know kind of what the purpose of these um, uh, these pro- protocols are, and therefore it's quite simple to, to make them up. And yes, I think people reading the books, I've certainly been told that my books are very authentic, and, and they're not authentic. They're um, they're plausible, perhaps, which is what I aim for. Um, and that's all I want. I mean, it's all I want as a reader, really. I don't, you know, when I'm reading a novel, I don't necessarily want to be informed that much. I don't necessarily want to be educated. It's more about entertainment. I want to know who these characters are that I'm reading about and what drives them and, um, and what they'll do next and how they relate to each other. And those are the things that I focus on when I'm writing the novels. Everything else, you know, the, the detail is just there really to give them stuff to do. And that's, that's what the, uh, the, um, the, tra- the tradecraft is all about in my world. When you switched over from the thrillers into the spy books and invented Slough House, you said in, in a couple of interviews, what you said is you wanted to examine the people who weren't on the top, maybe the losers, in fact. And I guess that's where Slough House came in. And then you kind of looked around and saw, I can't pronounce it, Andy D.L. from the yeah. Reginald. Yeah, he was. Um, I mean, certainly when I when I f- finished writing Slow Horses and sort of sat back. I mean, when you're when you're writing a novel, often you, you've got your head entirely in it, and you don't really necessarily see where everything is coming from. But when I finished writing it and took a step back, as it were, I realised that you know a lot of what I created in Jackson Lamb I borrowed from Reginald Hill's Andy D.L. All those books are wonderful. I've read them, uh, been reading them for decades. But that is just how fiction works really i mean it is a a, you know it ought to be a dialogue not a monologue so you're always borrowing from the amount of novels that you have read i mean i think of it as a well and you fill that well quite early in your life probably um you know in your teens and your early 20s when you're when you're quite open-hearted about your reading and you fill the well then with all the stuff that you think is good and what you want to what stays with you, you know, the books that stay with you. And um, your, your writing life ever after is kind of drawing on on that, on, on the way that you filled it. Yeah, Reginald Hill's work came into my life relatively early, I'm glad to say, and I've been obviously relying, in a way, on um, on his work in, in my own creations. But, you know, he himself, you know, writing about DL would say that, you know, it's, it's, it's partly fell stuff, you know. Um, when you're writing with a, about an archetype, I mean, you're you're essentially just burnishing what's already there. You're not making stuff up out of whole cloth or anything. And I, I certainly am not doing that. You describe Jackson Lamb as Timothy Spall with worse teeth, <laughs> which actually is quite worse than Gary Oldman. But this ghastly man who 
on the surface would be somebody nobody want to, would want to come near for reasons that are both physical and, I guess, olfactory. You somehow turn him into a hero, but from what I read, you were going to kill him off in the first book. Actually, I wasn't going to kill him off. I was going to kill more or less everybody else off. Um, I had not, when I wrote Slow Horses, it was going to be a, a novel. You know, I was just working on a book. I wasn't starting a series. Or I, I didn't realize I was starting a series. Yes, my intention in, in that book was, uh, my original intention had been to kind of blow up Slow House more or less, you know, either literally or, or one way or another, you know, cause it to, to cease to exist. As I got near the end, I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to hang around in this place for a while longer. So that didn't happen. Lamb's heroism is a bit of an open question, really. I mean, I steer clear of laying clear his motivations, for instance. I mean, I don't want I don't want readers to think that he means everything he says, or conversely, that he doesn't mean anything he says. Um, I'd rather keep him slightly mysterious. And I think that appeals to people. It's, in a way, it's easier to create a character who is enigmatic than it is to create one about whom you know everything. Because to create someone about whom you know everything, you have to be sure that you're doing so in an interesting manner. That could get quite boring if you just found out precisely what made a character tick. You know, they'd have to be really quite interesting. Uh, whereas if you're if you're left unsure about you know where a character is coming from and you know that he's got a history but you don't really know what it is and you know there's damage there and you know that there's self-loathing there, then that's that's more interesting in a way. And it's, it's also easier to do. You know, you don't spell any of it; you just hint at it. So I'm just taking advantage of um, of these kinds of things in, in creating Lamb. Um, I don't, I mean, I don't really want people to see him as a hero in as much as I've had communications from people who do think he's heroic in, in all the wrong ways. You know, they think he's battling against the forces of political correctness and the like, and they assume that I'm some kind of anti-woke warrior, which is absolute bullshit. Uh, I think the political correctness is deeply important because it means treating other people with respect and kindness, which is very, very uh, crucial to our, or to our continued existence. So, you know, I've got no intention of um, that, that Lamb should be seen in that way. And I think it's a, a poor reading of him because it, it ignores the fact fact that everything he says is deliberate you know he's being very precise he's doing it to provoke people and that automatically calls into question his sincerity if you're deliberately being insensitive because you know you want to offend the person that you're with then the idea that you know you believe you mean everything that you say is is obviously immediately out of out of the window you know it's just not there anymore the way that this works best then is never to get into his head one of the things that bothers me a lot about what we're seeing in series is that eventually we learn why people are the way they are and origin stories. And in, to some degree, you don't want that with a character like Lamb because that destroys who he is. You need to have the mystery by never going in his head. I think that's um, I think that's very true of well genre in particular because genres rely on series far more than mainstream fiction does. Uh, the yes characters can be damaged if you find out, as I say, too much about them. Particularly when you start to explore what what damaged them or you know what what tragedy lies in their past. It's often a bit too um, too easy. It's as if there's a key to a character and you present it to the reader and just say, okay, there's the key. I mean, if you if you got the key, then you don't care anymore. I think. Um, so I've never really been inside Lamb's head. I think once or twice in the, in the first couple of books, I probably do that. Once I realized 
that I was going to write more about this character, I realized that I had to step away. So in the books, certainly since I don't know, book three or so, I've never told the reader what Lamb is thinking or what he's feeling. I've just allowed the reader to um, witness, you know, what he's doing and, and hear what he's saying and, um, and make their own mind up, really. But as I say, I have fairly clear ideas about what they should be making their mind up, you know, that this is, you know, this is not to be trusted. You can't take everything he says or does at face value. Well, that means sort of getting into the heads of the people around him, which brings in characters like River and the other characters in Slough House. You have no fear, I guess, of either killing a character off or promoting them. No, I um, I never, I don't have a grand plan. You know, I don't, I don't look several books ahead. It's always just the book in hand that, uh, that I'm doing things to characters in. And I enjoy writing with an ensemble cast. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started writing spy fiction. I moved away from the private eye novel. The private eye novel tends to be about the private eye, and you, you're pretty much focused on a particular individual character. Whereas I knew writing about an organization, people who work for an organization, I could spread myself out a bit more and inhabit different points of view and very different kinds of fictional experiences, you know, the fictional histories. And um, and that appealed to me. And so creating The Slow Horses, um, I had great fun doing that uh, and still do, you know, bringing in new characters to the series is always about finding a new voice and finding a new kind of um, mindset. And that's that's great fun. I have the best of both worlds, really. I mean, I'm writing a series, but I get to write about different characters at the same time. So it's um, it's refreshing. I mean, I mean, in the sense that, you know, I can refresh the cast. That's what having a revolving door. Do you consider, say, bringing Malcolm Kyle back in later books? I hadn't thought about that at all while writing The Secret Hours. You know, that was purely a, a standalone as far right. as those are concerned. But um, it occurs to me now that, yes, there's no reason why I couldn't. I mean, I don't have it. I have no immediate plans to do so, but um, he's exi- he exists in the same world as the other characters that I've created in these other books, so there's no reason why he couldn't cross over. The earlier books, you know, the the, the private eye novels, Zoe, the Zoe novels, Zoe does not exist in the same world, I don't think. I did make a joke about it in one of the early books, but um, I can't see that I could ever introduce her to the those other characters. But uh, the people in, in The Secret Hours, yes, I, I could easily do so if I wanted to. I have no immediate plans to do so. After writing the, the first Slow Horses book, which didn't sell well, you began working on the second, even though the first... You weren't sure what was going to happen other than nothing was happening with the first, which means you took a real risk in even thinking about whether it would be published. It wasn't really a risk for me because um, I was I'm quite liberated at that stage in my career because I knew that I wasn't being a successful writer. Therefore, I didn't have any expectations and nobody was saying, oh, you must write a sequel to that, or you mustn't write a sequel to that. It didn't do well. Nobody cared, essentially. So I've always written for myself, and um, I found writing Slow Horses very fulfilling, and I wanted to stay with those characters. And if the book hadn't been published, I would have continued to write. That's why I write. I write for me, not for anybody else. I mean, now it's, it's very nice having a readership, and I'm, I'm delighted uh, with the way things have turned out. But if they hadn't turned out this way, I would still be writing these books, and nobody else is reading them, you know? It's, it's what I do. And you'd just be continuing your on your day job at the same time. That's right. I think my characters would probably be even more thwarted and miserable and uh, and depressed than they are now. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I would still be allowing them to get on with it. 
that actually, I was going to continue with that, but do you see yourself, I guess, going back and maybe putting in what life was like for them during the shutdown? I mean, I refer to it a bit in, in Bad Actors, the most recent novel, yeah. which was written during lockdown. At the time I was writing it, I was assuming that by the time the book was published, all this would be well behind us. It kind of was. I mean, in many ways it wasn't. COVID is still around. It's still with us. Uh, I didn't want to write a lockdown novel. It felt too soon. I don't think so. I don't, because I like to keep, I mean, despite the, you know, those kind of flashback stuff in, in the recent novel, I like to write in the contemporary world. Um, so my characters have been through COVID. They've been through lockdown. They will remember those things in the same way that the rest of us do. But I can't see that I'm going to write a novel set during that period. I might be a short story there or, or something like, but um, uh, I'm not planning to address that that era, as it were. When you wrote the second book, uh, Mark Richards at John Murray read the first one, fell in love, and contacted you. At that point, you'd pretty much given up. I mean, you were writing and were going, well, whatever. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that giving up is right, but I certainly had no expectations of fame or, or success or, you know, major success. For me, success was having the books published. For me, success was writing a novel. You know, I mean, that in itself is, is quite a, um, a, a major hurdle to overcome. So when Mark approached me, I was, you know, pleased and flattered. I didn't really expect much to come of it, to be honest, but uh, I was happy to let him have a go. Soho, he contacted Soho or they read the books. How did it come to America? I believe he approached um, – so Soho had been publishing me all the time, I mean, right from the very first novel because of um, an historical relationship between Soho and Constable and Robinson, who were my original publishers, uh, who dropped me after um, Slow Horses. Uh, so Soho had continued to publish me. Deadlines did not have a UK publisher, nor did the following novel, Nobody Walks, which was one of the two standalones I referred to earlier. So when uh, Mark Richards came across the books, there was no UK publisher at all, and he approached Soho to lease the UK rights, as I understand it, and uh, then came to me after that. They gave you know they gave Mark their blessing to approach me and um, and see what I thought about it. And how did the uh, TV series come about? That I mean that was quite early, really. It was after deadlines. It was only two books. They'd been published. I think I'd probably written the third by then, but it certainly hadn't appeared. Various TV companies were getting in touch and inquiring about the rights. I remember I spent a day visiting three of them, the three major ones that um, had shown an interest and, and wanted to um, to option the books. And I met various producers that day and went with um, the ones at Seesaw, who impressed me greatly and still do. Um, and that was 2015, I think it must have been, uh, January 2015. Um, and it was a good eight years before the, was eight years? It might have been 2014. I can't remember. I'm very poor on, on <laughs> right. Um Anyway, it was eight years between that first meeting and the, the show, the first episode of the show streaming. So, you know, it, it's a long burn process. And that, you know, in itself isn't by no means setting new records for uh, the amount of time it takes to get a TV show up and running. Uh, it was all very... Um, slow burn there was a lot of work going on and not much happening and then suddenly things started happening very quickly will smith who was the lead writer on the show and who was part of the team from very early on from within a, you know a month or so of um, of the option being taken up uh, being being uh, agreed upon 
um, he'd said to me on our very first meeting, this will happen very, very slowly until it starts happening very, very quickly. And he was right on both counts. I say it took eight years, you know, for the first six and a half of those years, nothing was happening. And then suddenly things started happening very quickly. And it was only, you know, it would have been slightly quicker, uh, except for COVID. Uh, there was shooting during lockdown. You know, it would all have been, I don't know, six months faster if um, if not for COVID. But uh, there was a lot of, lot of waiting and then suddenly everything happened at once. And how did you find out that Gary Oldman was interested and were you thinking, wow, amazing, or what were your thoughts? And I know that when you toured Slough House, you're kind of going, they went into my head. I know that part of it. I mean, Gary had been certainly been on everybody's radar. He was one of those um, top of everybody's wish list, I suppose. And then finding out that he was actually very interested in doing it was um, was wonderful. It didn't come out of the blue. You know, his name had been around, but I remember getting the phone call. I was out in town. Um, I remember getting a phone call saying, yes, he's um, he's doing it. It's happening. And that was at the point at which things started happening quickly, you know, because when Gary Oldman is interested, everybody else is interested too. Everybody wants to um, to have a role, you know, whether it's in the cast or, you know, behind the camera or anywhere else. Everybody wants to work with Gary, rightly so. He's one of the uh, major character actors of our time. Um, so that was, yeah, absolutely wonderful. And that was the point where I kind of heaved a sigh of relief. I mean, I'm, I've been involved, you know, I've been in the writer's room and, um, and been, always been told what's going on. But it always felt kind of separate to me. It still does in many ways. You know, I write the books. I don't, I don't put stuff on screen. There's, you know, there are many, many people between what I do and what happens when you turn your TV on. And I suppose part of me had always thought, well, you know, if it all goes wrong, you know, and if they do make it and it's it's, it's awful, um, I've got, you know, all the alibis in the world. I just say it's nothing to do with me, mate. No, I just wrote the book. Uh, but as soon as I heard that, that Gary was involved, I mean, I, I had great faith in the in the producers and the, the people who were, I was working right. with. But, um, you know, there's there's always things that can go wrong. But as soon as I really knew that, that Gary was involved, Gary Oldman was involved, I just relaxed. So, well, it's not going to be bad, is it? I mean, whatever happens, it's going to have Gary Oldman in it. It's going to be that bit of it, at least, is, is going to be fantastic. And, of course, he attracted so much other talent as well, and um, it all worked out brilliantly. So then I, I felt, you know, from that moment on, I felt I can just, you know, I don't have to worry. It's not going to be a disaster. It's going to be really quite special. I knew that from an early stage. Well, the other part of it, uh, in talking to people who read the books and saw the show, is the faithfulness to the books, which no one can expect. No one can, and I, I didn't, nor did I feel that I had a, a right to that necessarily. I mean, the, the grammar of storytelling is so different on the page than it is on the screen. There are necessarily going to be huge alterations that you have to make. You have to overcome the problems of interiority. I write inside my characters' heads all the time. I mean, not Lamb, but all the other characters. I'm always inside them. So uh, there are all sorts of things you have to do in order to tell a story without resorting to voiceovers. You know, you can't say this is what this character's thinking or simply have characters explaining to each other all the time what's going on. So I thought there would be, you know, lots of changes, but in fact, there were far fewer than, than I remotely expected. 
I mean, there are some. The, the plot has to change here and there. I think what happened, really, when I think about it, they are so true to the characters. They're so true to the tone and the mood. They're so true to the appearance. I mean, what they've done with Snow House is just fantastic. It really does replicate what I tried to put on the page. They got all those things right. And I think that viewers who know the books are watching it, and they are so relieved to see that because that's what they wanted, that um, changes in the plot, you know, when the events work out a little bit differently, or sometimes even quite, you know, different in a, in a major way. They don't notice them so much because everything else is just there. You know, so long as Catherine is being Catherine, so long as um, River is, you know, recognisably River Cartwright, then the fact that, you know, they're, they're doing things slightly differently or in different places doesn't matter. You know, the, that's where the fidelity lies, I think, that they got the characters right. And, uh, and that's what matters to me. In reading uh, Secret Hours, I kept seeing Kristen Scott Thomas in my head as first desk. I mean, I couldn't not do that. It felt that way. In your mind now, when you're writing, can you separate these actors from the characters completely? I, I do, and I think it's, it is more or less complete, but that's because I don't really have a visual imagination. I'm not trying to put down on paper images that I have in my head. I am simply playing with words on the page and trying to make the words do what I want them to do. So I've never had a, a, a physical image of what Jackson looks like, not really. I mean, I did borrow that Timothy Spall character um, because I thought that was a shortcut you know, to, to providing a physical description of him. But I'm, you know, I've never since writing that have I thought about Timothy Spall when I'm writing Jackson Lamb. Um, so what I'm doing is is writing to the voices in my head, and uh, I've continued to do that. I'm writing a Slowhouse novel now, and I'm not relying on the um, the actors that have been cast in those roles. At the same time, if I do start doing that, I don't think it's going to make any difference at all because, as I said before, the actors are, are have gone so much out of the way to embody the characters as they appear on the page and in the novels that um you know there's the it would make no difference you know if i'm writing if i'm writing first desk then i think readers will now see christian scott thomas and that's fine because christian scott thomas just does what i put on the page for um, for first desk he does it so perfectly that uh, uh you know you couldn't slip a cigarette paper between them a friend of mine who is now deceased used to talk about uh these books all of his books and a lot of other books, uh, trying to put a cinematic image in your head. Uh, but it sounds as if you're not really coming from that place at all. Um, I don't think so, although I do think that um, when writing action scenes, anybody of, of my generation, and you know, going back a bit beyond that, has grown up you know, watching television, seeing movies, and I think that that's probably altered the way that any anybody writes action sequences in particular because the uh, the techniques that you one uses for for that kind of thing tend to be borrowed from cinema uh, you know the cutting from one point of view to another right. the, um, the the kind of short scenes to increase the tension and or to propel the reader along you know to to keep finding out what happens next they're all really cinematic techniques um, and that comes kind of naturally i mean it, it's I, I don't think about that when i'm writing but i realize that's what i've done when i when i look back at what i have written it's a it's a mixture between the two i mean as i say i'm i'm on the page you know i'm i'm my uh my inspirations are all tend to be verbal like to do with choosing the right vocabulary and and um 
and, and creating paragraphs and things. But nevertheless, for a certain kind of writing, it is inevitable. I th- well, maybe not inevitable, but I find it personally unavoidable to start borrowing these um, cinematic usages, and um, and it seems to work. You know, I mean, I find that when I'm reading other other writers' novels, you know, I, I recognise the kind of cinematic energies that are, that are being put to use, and you know, I, I do that myself. Uh, but it's not it's not that conscious. You know, it's just it seems to come naturally. Mick Heron, now Secret Hours is out, and I understand your next book is Back to Slough House. That's right, yes. How far along are you? I started work on it in April, and I'm, I've written about 10 pages or so. I'm a very slow writer in these early stages. It will probably speed up a bit as I go on, but I won't, I won't you know, I'll be writing it for the next year. In one of those articles I read, for you... This is the first draft, which you hope is complete, but then what really counts are the edits and the rewrites that you make along the way, where you try to pull it together and do the words. So that's where the real work comes, and maybe even the real fun. It is fun, yes. I mean, uh, rewriting is more fun than writing. You don't have the problem of the blank page staring at you. You've got words on the page and, and shifting them around and um, trying to improve them or, or finding different ways of um, uh, making them, I don't know, sort of dance across the page or whatever. That's where the, the real fun lies. And that's all craft. Uh, the first, absolute first draft, you know, the bit where you're you're filling a blank page with words, that's... That's art. That's when you put everything down that you want to put down. That's when you empty your heart onto the page. Everything else is craft, and craft is far more important. That's when you take that mess and try to turn it into something that is readable and um, and ideally a lot more concise than the original version was. So yes, I, I rewrite all the time, and it's um uh, you know I, I constantly go over what I wrote you know yesterday before I start writing today. That kind of thing. By the time I deliver a completed book. Uh, I mean, it's, I suppose, technically it's a first draft, but it's been rewritten. I mean, particularly the first chapter or so will have been rewritten literally dozens of times. I don't mean, you know, wholly rewritten, but it will have been revised dozens of times. Uh, sentences will have disappeared, you know, vocabulary will have changed, all the rest of it. Have you seen the the third season of Slow Horses yet, which isn't out yet? Uh, I haven't yet. I'm seeing it quite soon, I think, but we haven't yet got a, a date for that. But I will. I hope to see it. Yeah, reasonably soon. I've seen clips of it, and it's it's looking really good. Actually, it's it's great fun. That's fantastic. Uh, you've been listening to an interview with Mick Heron, whose book is titled "The Secret Hours," and the Slough House books are out there. Uh, for people to catch up and two seasons of slow horses in america are on apple plus feedback on this and other radio walensky podcasts is appreciated you can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 